I'm Scott McGowan, and this is Point Blank, where we close in on the ideas and stories that shape PLNU. Point Blank is sponsored by the PLNU Associated Student Body. So if you are a current student, the show is brought to you by you. Imagine you are in a cave. Not a nasty spider-infested cave, but a warm, secure, but very dark cave. You are chained to the wall of this cave, but you don't mind much because you get sufficient food and water and a bunch of your pals are chained right there next to you. With the world the way it is right now, this probably doesn't actually sound like too bad of a gig. Now this cave is warm because there's a fire always burning up on the ledge behind you that you can't see. You know it's there because it casts light on the wall in front of you and your pals. All day long, objects are passed in front of the fire and cast strange shadows on the wall. Only, you've lived here your whole life, so those shadows don't just appear perfectly normal to you, they constitute the totality of your experience of the world. You are warm, you are fed, you've got some buddies, and you get to just sit and take in the daily show that someone puts on for you. It's great. It's just an enormous imprisoning lie. Many of you know this odd little tale because it was told by Plato over 2,500 years ago, and you read it, or at least your teacher assigned it and you were told about it, in your high school lit class. It's still familiar to you because it's also been retold in myriad other stories over the generations and is deeply embedded in our culture. The Old Testament tells dozens of versions of the same story of humans seemingly stuck in the dark, needing but not wanting a brighter, truer light. The Apostle Paul asserts that we only see the world dimly and distorted, like looking through glass. Shakespeare's characters find regular failure in their inability to see their own situation clearly as the audience watches on these poor attempts to grope around for truth. It's all over modern culture as well. Remember Obi-Wan telling Luke he's just taken his first steps in a larger world? He's emerging from the cave. How about Frodo and Sam leaving the Shire? In The Hunger Games, Katniss is born in a superficial world dominated by hidden powers and has to be repeatedly and dramatically confronted with the suffering it causes to change her understanding. She begins a journey out of the cave. The Matrix is maybe the purest ripoff of Plato's metaphor, but in a leather and sunglasses future. So this story is powerful enough to spread over time and genre, but why should we care so much? Well, you don't have to care, and the cave is a nice, warm place for you. But if you notice that this simple story allows us to think about how we see our world, how we generate meaning and understanding, and how it covers the entirety of our experience, you start to see that this story is so powerful because it is a story about stories. And it's actually just one of several basic human narratives that underpin human understanding and our ability to meaningfully connect with each other. Here to talk today about the vastly understated power of narrative is PLNU alum and current professor, Eddie Matthews. Eddie got his BA in writing and MA in teaching and learning from PLNU. He went on to earn his PhD in creative writing from Swansea University. His publications include Reed Magazine, Construction Literary Magazine, Storgi, the Cheval Anthology of Young Writers, and Zero Hours on the Boulevard, a Brexit short story collection. He worked as an editor and marketing officer at the Welsh independent publisher Parthian Books, where he edited Ironopolis, a novel that was nominated for the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction and the Portico Prize. He's interviewed winners of the Dylan Prize, the Dylan Thomas Prize for Swansea University, creating a podcast out of his conversations with writers like Max Porter and Joshua Ferris. Currently, he is a fiction writer for The Rumpus, and he has the pleasure of teaching literature and writing composition courses here at PLNU. 
Eddie, so glad to finally get you in here. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Um, honored to be a guest on the, is the first season of the Point Blank podcast? This is, yeah, this is, you're okay. the sixth, sixth uh, episode here. Oh, wonderful. Glad to yeah. be here. Um, and so I just gave your, your long and so such impressive CV for um, someone I, you know, am embarrassed to say is, I think, significantly younger than me, even though I think you're more mature. Um, but leading up to that, that started at your, your beginning of your BA experience here at Point Loma. Um, let's, can we start by just telling us a little bit about what brought you to PLNU? How did you, how did you get here as a undergrad in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I remember coming out of high school, uh, senior of high school, I had one of those AP lit classes and writing was the first thing I really felt like I excelled at, you know, I kind of felt like one of those kids that was jack of all trades, master of none. You know, I could kind of do everything a little bit competently, but I never had that one thing that I really excelled at. Uh, so writing was kind of the first, uh, time that I had that. And I had this senior in high school teacher, Mr. Pierce, who I think just kind of cultivated that in me early on. And so when I was looking at, uh, you know, potentially majors to study, I know a lot of, some colleges had you have to like choose the major even at the application process. So that was kind of the forefront of my mind at the time. And uh, Point Loma kind of differentiated itself from some of the other like CCCU schools because it had a writing program, like the, the actual, you know, uh, title of the major was writing rather than English or literature or composition or whatever. Um, so that, was really appealing to me because it kind of, uh, I, I guess just built upon something I felt like I already excelled at. And you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, you're just grasping for any kind of identity that you have. Uh, so writing kind of became that for me early on. And then I realized that I just really um, was drawn to Christian schools because, almost because of that like faculty to student ratio more than hmm. anything. Hmm. So the fact that Point Loma, when I looked it up, you know, had like a 14 to one student faculty ratio. Um, that was really what I wanted out of my college experience. I didn't want to feel just kind of like a number in a, in a huge kind of seminar class. Sure. Like my nightmare was kind of going to my perception of these kind of like huge schools, the, where you would attend these seminars and be one of hundreds and hundreds yeah. of students. And then you Big have rules. Yeah. And so, Point Lemma seemed to offer that kind of just intimacy of that learning experience that I really, really desired and craved. And then um, after, yeah, the kind of first couple semesters, that was really what it delivered on, um, which I was delighted by. And so I got to meet people like Dean Nelson, who is still a friend of mine, people like uh, James Wicks, who is still a friend of mine, people who um, were just really formative into making my degree something that was really valuable to me. And then building relationships that turned into friendships you know so going from like I mean I still consider those guys mentors but now we're a little bit more peers just because I stuck around long enough <laughs> yeah. yeah you mentioned you mentioned these influences and and I think especially Dean has been someone who's been even more recently influential for me as well yeah um, I, I'd love to hear you maybe just say briefly like talk, talk about uh, his influence with you and who Dean is and why students should actually care or pay attention to to this um, particular professor at Point Loma. Absolutely, yeah, so uh, Dean Nelson started the journalism program here and uh, he's been here for about 30 years, I hope. Dean, you know, I hope uh, that's the <laughs> right amount. Uh, <laughs> he only listens every once in a while. Yeah, okay. so. <laughs> excellent. Um, so Dean has this incredible ability 
as an interviewer or just as a human being to make seemingly anyone feel comfortable sharing the same space with him. And that is Dean's superpower in my estimation because he does it so effortlessly and so naturally. Um, but it is something that he is such an active listener and he's uh, somebody who is really paying attention to the words that you're saying and responding to that and having like a real genuine kind of conversation. And um, which comes in handy when he's he's a world class interviewer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When he, he, when he's interviewing uh, Alice Walker, Joyce Carol Oates, or Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Um, and so just the way that he is, he treats every single person with dignity, and that doesn't matter if they're an eighteen year old who is in his freshman uh, writing composition class, or if it's Joyce Carol Oates. Like, and that to me is something that is so. Uh, just deeply life-giving. And so yeah. for Dean, um, the fact that he's kind of uh, invested in my friendship, it sounds like in yours as well, like it, it doesn't necessarily matter what background academically you come from or faith background or anything. Like Dean is just cur a, cur a deeply curious person. And that curiosity to me is uh, so just necessary. So Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's a prolific author. He also he runs the Writer Symposium by the Sea, which if you're a student listening and you I know you've heard of this thing before and it probably just gets lumped in with all the other endless amount of programming that normally in a non-COVID environment is going on on our campus. Um, but I just I definitely this is, a, this is a call out to you to to take note next time you see an advertisement for the Writer Symposium. This is a it's a big deal. It's a I mean, we, we get attendance there from the entire community, even beyond and uh, incredible writers that uh, that Dean brings in, um, world famous writers. And I think students can get tickets for like five bucks sometimes. It's amazing, so, yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, like all the authors you just mentioned, um, yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was here two years ago. Yeah. Uh, and then I think this year um, was uh, Cornell West and David Brooks um, yeah. were, were both scheduled to be here and plan to be here next year when, they, when it resumes, so. Yeah. Um, watch out for that, students. Um, that's uh, it's a it's a truly meaningful and unique um, part of your Point Loma experience. Don't miss out. Um, but it, it also talking about Dean, part of that is that he is this. What we talk about here with with stories, and that stories are so importantly convey meaning and give us an ability to connect. That's the world Dean. Those those are waters Dean swims in all the time, and how he sees his world that makes him so good at connecting with people. Um, so you obviously have a shared interest in that. Your your entire um, CV speaks to that. Tell me, um, tell me about that. Tell me what narrative means to you. Give us all the all the background. Yeah. No. Thanks. So. I mean, I think for me, like narrative is something, and I think it seems like that's one of the themes our, of our conversation going to be today. Is it's inescapable. Like mm. you, there is just no facet of your life that you can think about that really you can escape from creating narrative because meaning emerges from narrative. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it just leads us to we have to be really, really careful about the narratives that we imbibe, you know, and we allow to like incorporate into our identity because some of those can be deeply redemptive and life giving and good. And some of those can be destructive. And the thing about I think narrative, especially cultural narratives or societal narratives is, is you a lot of times don't uh, realize that you are playing this out mm -hmm. in your life, this cultural narrative in your life, because 
it's just the waters you swim in, you mm-hmm. know, like, uh, my favorite writer is a guy named David Foster Wallace and he did this, uh, commencement speech at Kenyon college in 2005. And, uh, I'd encourage anyone to like, look it up on YouTube. It has a few million views and I, I, it's a good kind of like inroad into David Foster Wallace cause he can be kind of a, a really cerebral writer, but he, he is only in that way to try to make like a heart to heart kind of connection. Anyways, he has this metaphor of, um, he starts his speech with saying two young fish are swimming along and then they greet an older fish and the older fish says, uh, how's the water boys? And then continue swimming. And then the two young fish, uh, continue on swimming themselves. And one young fish turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? water? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, it's the idea of when you're so deeply immersed in something it becomes invisible. And I think that that um, is what we have to watch out for as as Christians, as Americans, and, and not just as Americans, as, you know, anyone who grows up in whatever nation state. Like, mm-hmm. And so those narratives that are so deeply a part of the fabric of our everyday lives can a lot of times become invisible. And then we end up being kind of these unknowing participants in narratives that can harm other people without us having bad intentions, without other, you know, um, without, uh, us being like the bad actors in, in this mm-hmm. scenario. So mm-hmm. one of, one of my favorite books is a book called the remains of the day. Um, it's by a Japanese born British author named Kazuo Ishiguro. And it was adapted to a movie, I think in the, like the late eighties with Anthony Hopkins. Um, so that might be, uh, it might ring a bell for some listeners if they've seen that movie, but, this, the core kind of premise of the book is that it's this, it's narrated by this English butler um, in the in the like recent post-war era in England. And uh, the butler's name is Stevens. And he's talking about Lord Darlington and how great of a man he was and how honored he was to serve him, um, you know, for the entirety, you know, most of his career, 50 years or 40 years of his like long career as a butler. And now he's retired and reflecting on his life and writing these diary entries. And so the, the novel's kind of told in first person, but as you continue to read it, you realize how in denial uh, this English butler is. And then it comes to light that this guy that he was serving, that he was so admirable of, that treated him really well, that he was hosting all these events for, was a Nazi th- sympathizer during World War II. Hmm. And uh, Stevens never fully comes to the realization or never allows himself to communicate that kind of dynamic or the the problematic nature of serving a Nazi sympathizer for 40 years. Um, But it's kind of left to the reader to, to see like, oh, sometimes even when we work really hard and we think that we're serving something that is truly admirable and truly virtuous and truly good, you know, despite our best intentions, it can be a destructive thing. So like, what are we contributing towards? That might be the thing in our life. That's kind of the, the question yeah. the book asks. So yeah, some of those narratives might be worth challenging. You know? Yeah. You, um, you mentioned, it's interesting. You mentioned world war two there. I know we've talked about this as you're talking about narrative. It can oftentimes catch people who haven't been thinking about it in a while and think, well, th- yeah, this is so pervasive and all around me. I don't ever think about it. And that we, kind of swim in these other waters uh that aren't don't feel to us to be narrative we feel like disconnected there's maybe like a might be a false binary but there's some sort of some sort of binary there of where we really are what i mean i know we've talked about this what 
what's your view of like in the post-war era, how we have kind of disconnected from narrative? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, um, I guess that what my mind immediately jumps to with that is that the narrative that in the kind of post-war boom where everybody could kind of afford to buy a house with a picket fence and have kids and, you know, have a job and all of yeah. these things. The American dream is a story. The American dream is a story. Exactly. And, uh, it's a good story and yeah. it's a, and it's a, to feel good. It, it, well, it's a, it's a deeply kind of like emotionally affecting story and, um, and it's magnetic, you know, like people come from all around the world with this kind of legacy and the story in mind. And so many people have achieved that. However, I think the problem is that if that story isn't allowed to be renewed with each generation and kind of adapted, it becomes um, nostalgic in a way that is disconnected from the everyday reality of most people, you know? Like my generation, do you, are, are you're a millennial, right? I am. Like, I'm, an, I'm an older millennial, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, our generation is like the most economically uh, unlucky yeah, yeah. generation <laughs> yeah. Uh, since, and I, I think the data indicates like since the generation that went through two world wars and the Great, and the Great Depression. Depression yeah. Cause uh, you know, the housing collapse in 2008 and mm-hmm. then with this pandemic recession, uh, it's making it so that many of us in our generation cannot possibly achieve the American dream because of what home ownership entails right now, mm-hmm. how much equity you have to have built up, uh, the student debt that so many of us have. Um, so all of that were, all of those factors weren't necessarily present in this like nice, like economic boom that was happening in the sixties. Yeah. And I grew up in a house, uh, my dad, uh, the fifties, and I, from my earliest memories until this very day, the fifties was paradise in my mm. household. Like my yeah. dad always talked about like the 1950s huh. he actually was named it. when we were a Christian country. It was uh. when there was respect for authority. It's when, um, there was not very much cultural unrest. There wasn't yeah, violence, security, was safety, yeah. security, safety. Yeah. All these things. And so, and then the hippies came in and ruined it all. <laughs> and so that was yeah. like the narrative that I grew up in and it took a lot of time and unlearning and, and specifically that I did, I think in these formative years at Point Lomo, where I started to challenge some of that narrative in my parents' life, it was like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, if you're an upper middle class white family, in that time, yeah, it was great. Yeah. But if you weren't those things, which my dad was part of, but if you weren't those things, it was a very different country if you're in, if you're a black man in Alabama in 1958. Or, yeah. So, yeah, the beginning of urban decline and, and, you know, uh, yeah, poverty beginning to rise in ways that became really problematic in the 60s and 70s yeah. and contributing to that. Uh, yeah, 1950s were, not not great for everyone in fact not great for a lot of people <laughs> totally um, just their stories don't seem to get told absolutely and, and instead so what i'm hearing is we're instead 
like almost collectively, we are chained to that wall, that cave, watching this sort of form story play out in front of us that we're, it's, it's all we kind of collectively know to, to think about. And we're just maybe, like you said, our generation has become disillusioned enough um, that maybe we're starting to say we're, we're willing to go try to find the journey out of this cave, even though it's, it's painful and see what other reality might be out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you come to a place where you realize that, um, and this is what I think the liberal arts experience is really key for. I think this is what point limit did for me is that I realized I had like, I didn't, I, I mean, I just didn't have a worldview. I had a, there's not really a term for it, but maybe like a state view, yeah. if anything, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. like it did not extend beyond California. Sure. Um, and so coming here and yeah, reading, uh, Borges and Marquez and like these, uh, Latin American magic realists, I just had no idea you could do that with language, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, and just, uh, going down to, you know, like, uh, participating in one of the ministries that went down to this Tijuana orphanage, you know, mm-hmm. um, I just didn't know how other people lived, you know? And, uh, so Point Loma for me was like a beautiful kind of way to s- safely start to expand that worldview in a way that didn't collapse everything that I knew because that can be really paralyzing if you're exposed to too much too early on without any sort of like um progressive build you know progressive in the sense of like accumulating experiences um and building out what what you knew before and so that to me um was a hugely like formative time to start to challenge like okay was 1950s America really paradise for everybody or was it for the small proportion of people? Um, and then how do people in other parts of the world live? And are these not also God's children or are they not also, you know, hoping to, I don't know, better their lives? So there's a different, there's like a, there's maybe a competing story or, or maybe a market of competing stories that actually were, we're, in this post-war era where we are very committed to a descriptive or a literal engagement with our world um, that seems to disconnect us from the, like how it, how it connects to a broader story. There are maybe some of these other really basic or primal human narratives that are competing for our attention. And, and you just bring up one of them that here at Point Loma, we, um, we, the way that, uh, that Stanley Hauerwas says it is we are, we are a storied people. Yeah. Uh, because we are Christians. And yeah. so that he, that this kind of dichotomy, dichotomy you're talking about between this American story and then this Christian story, he, he'll say it as, um, the, the American, if there's a story for America, it's a, it's a pretty superficial one. It says, um, the story of America is I should have no story except the story that I chose when I had no story right. that it's a nonsense because we have no, we're supposed to be these independent creatures that, sure. uh, that just tabla rasa generate our own meaning out of nothing, um, and have the freedom and that's what freedom and independence is. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's totally inhuman. Uh, and he says, you know, the, the biggest way that it is, is like, it makes marriage totally unintelligible. Because yeah. how could you possibly give up that kind of, like you can't live into that if you give up that kind of freedom and actually commit to something responsible. But he always says that in the same breath that he says, 
it also doesn't work for Christians because we do have a story. We are a storied people. So I'm curious how your perception of that, what, what is the Christian story then in all of this? I guess in this current moment, it's really up for debate. For me, okay. I, I always, I always understood the Christian story as good news as the, like the gospel is good news for all people. Uh, simply put. And so for me, um, the Christian story of life, death, and resurrection, uh, it should apply to once you, once you start thinking beyond, okay, how does this apply to me? But how does this apply to other people? It starts to become really expansive in a way that I didn't necessarily was raised in. I was raised that kind of like the straight and narrow path that you that leads to heaven is walked by the people who say a prayer of personal relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus Christ like yeah the former one sounds like well th- this one sounds like you you can you get to do it on your own yeah you don't need help yeah yeah you can you can walk that path on your own the former though wow it involves other people you have to include other people <laughs> right. in the story and exactly. that actually is a central part of it and i think that it's it's interesting cuz i i think that the kind of American ethos of pull yourself by your own bootstraps, like make yourself whatever you want to be. Scott, you're an American. Whatever you set your mind to, you can accomplish that in this country because this country was started with a tabula tabula rasa and you can make of it whatever you want because it was an open frontier. And so the idea that like my salvation is up to me and it takes effort and it takes discipline and it's between me and God and no one else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it disregards so much of like the community that like, if you look at the um, ways that Jesus characterizes the afterlife or like what comes after he uses banquet metaphors hmm. so much more than he uses like a court trial type metaphor. Sure. But growing up for me, it was a court trial type thing because that was what I was, that was the narrative that was constantly like reaffirmed and re kind of um, just concretized in my mind. Yeah. I actually, if we can, yeah. um, can we talk a little bit about how did that happen? How did we get from Jesus talking about banquets and celebration, huge yeah. community, you know, the yeah. kill the fattened calf and let's have a party um, and I'll join and I'll be together and I'll live in light and in, in light of each other and in, in, um, relationship to each other too. It's about me and my, my, my court date I have (laughs) when my heart stops beating, I get my court date with, with St. Peter and Jesus and whoever, how the heck have that happen? I mean, it's been 2000 years. Yeah. A lot's happened. What in there caused that? I think for me, I think you could pin it to a lot of different things, but the thing that immediately jumps to my mind, and you could probably speak to this more than I can, is that in America, we're a deeply puritanical Mm -hmm. culture. And so like, I kind of put this at the feet of the Puritans (laughs) (laughs) because I think that they're long gone. They can't, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. but, but their, but their influence is so deeply pervasive still in American culture and the way that we think about our bodies and, you know, are just ashamed of, we carry so much shame with our bodies you know, in, in a way no, that other... They all died off 300 years ago. There's no way. <laughs> How could they still be influential? 
I think that city on a hill, kind of like John Winthrop, like mm-hmm. we are the beacon that other people look to for light is one of these kind of like metaphors, one of these narratives that it came from like the Puritan people that still is like so just pervasive in the, in like the rhetoric of, of today, whether it's in churches or political. It seems like every president has to either be Protestant or pretend to be Protestant. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, and still, s- yeah. Like 300 still, years later, still, still a requirement. Yeah. And I think that, um, because it, cause that's the only way into the narrative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Like the narrative that, is actually underpinning all of it. Yeah. Whether you're, whether you think Jesus even existed, yeah. it is, if you were an American, it is in you and there, that president has to, has to unlock that. It's inescapable. And so I think, yeah, to answer your question, I think the Puritans were really punitive and were really into punishment Mm -hmm. and were uh, also really into discipline and conscientiousness, which obviously there's a lot to be said for the merits of discipline and conscientiousness. Mm. Um, But I I think that's really what what it came down to is that if you think that your faith and your entry to heaven, let's say in this context, is um, dependent upon your individual kind of uh, relationship with God and that that relationship is either um, fed or uh, detracted from the things that you do. So every decision you make, every thought you have is either bringing you closer to God or Mm -hmm. away from God. That pretty quickly, I think for the Puritans devolved into a system of rewards and punishment. Mm-hmm. And so those who are playing by the rules are who those who are doing it right. Those are not having sex before marriage. Those who are, um, tr- trying to set a good example, everything like, which are good things, but they did it in a way, in my opinion, that became, um, easy to denigrate and punish other people who, didn't have an easy as as easy time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maintaining that level of discipline, and so it became like a very kind of like narrow way to God because um, it kind of disregarded people who failed. Yeah, it's like an idolatry of the pure almost. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that um, it, it's it's really strange because the, the people Jesus chose to surround himself with constantly. Or people who failed again and again and again. Yeah. And so someone who's been really influ- and influential for me and just kind of like developing my faith and challenging some of these narratives that, that I was brought up with is Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan um, friar in, in New Mexico. And uh, he said something that was such deeply... Right now I'm trying to just pay attention to what is good news. <laughs> and so like trying to like recapture the narrative of the gospel of being good news. And so uh, Richard Rohr says that um, you come to God not by doing it right, but by doing it wrong. Hmm. Just the idea of like incorporating your failure into the narrative narrative of your life is something that's deep. You don't choose to, no one chooses to go out and fail. Like that's not something Mm -hmm. like no one likes failure, but it is just part of being human. It's just part of the game. You know, it's just part of any relationship that you have. And so the idea that, when you fail, if you're trying to continue to learn from that and evolve from that, that also is part of the story of God. And so yeah. it's just, it's strange how we will take Moses and we'll take 
Abraham and we'll take, um, you know, any like character in the Bible and then kind of like jettison all of their flaws and all of their David, all of their flaws, all their mistakes until we get some kind of like pure thing. Uh, and then we try to worship that. Yeah. We need to fit that, yeah. that character into this. What you're describing now is even in some ways specifically American story that needs that purity. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, when God calls Abram, like, or Moses, like Moses, like when God calls Abram, it's not necessarily because he's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. He prostitutes his wife to Pharaoh. Twice. He, <laughs> twice. Yeah. He, he disobeys regularly. Yeah. Um, you know, Moses is a murderer, um, and you know, among other things. And yeah, these aren't, these, these actually aren't these pure figures, but the American version of it needs that, needs it to be that way. Yeah. It's, that's how powerful, that's how powerful that narrative is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it leads to so much pain because you're, because you're ashamed to be human. Like that's really what it comes down Mm. to is that every time that you're reminded that you're a human being who's imperfect in that narrative, it just brings shame and pain. Mm. Whereas in the narrative of like incorporating your failures into the story of God and God being able to redeem suffering and being able to redeem like your mistakes, that to me is like why that's the point of the incarnation. Like that's why God came to suffer with humanity. Yeah, because your response so. to the failure is is to accept, like to to surrender, not to control. Right, yeah. like this this being ashamed or trying to avoid is actually a re- control reaction. We we need to have everything buttoned up and tidy and be in control of it, or um, you know we lose that independence that makes us American. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, the story is, oh, but if you just surrender, you, you failed and you just surrendered to the fact that you can't make yourself any better, only the Lord can do that. Yeah. And you just, you open your hands and give up the control. Then you are, and this is, you know, Roar talks about this too. Yeah. You, you receive this humbling um, growth that, you know, enfolds you deeper in, in what it means to be truly human. Well, adopting that latter narrative just makes you, you can't help but become more loving that way. And so that's something that I've seen in my life is that the more uh, I've just become less judgmental as I've become less judgmental of my own mistakes and failures, you know, along the way. Um, And just forgiving of like the human experience. And so uh, for me, the Puritans seem to prioritize like self-purity and um like individual kind of i don't know discipline and achievement above like being loving people Hmm. and so i guess i guess that's the thing of of narratives in this country and whatever country you're listening to this in um or whatever faith background like is that narrative helping you become a more loving person or is it not Hmm. and like it i mean it sounds simple and trite but the whole point of the gospel is to make people more loving. Like that's, it's, yeah, that's it. That's the, yeah, that's what the good news is, is yeah. there's, a, there's a path to that. Yeah. And so I think that's when you kind of can reduce it back to, to that as its source, it, it becomes good news again. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that when we think about, um, 
I don't know. Like, so for me, a big thing that I've been still thinking through and wrestling with is this idea of, you know, the death of Christ on the cross rather than it being atonement for the individual times I've fallen short. It's God come, it's God made man incarnate, divinely participating in the suffering of humanity in the worst, like most imaginable way possible. Mm-hmm. So that when we experience unimaginable pain and suffering, we know God's accompanying us through that and is with us. And that to me is so much better news because it doesn't, it doesn't like appropriate our suffering into some sort of, oh, this is serving all a purpose. Right, right. You don't like go to a parent who's just lost their two-year-old child of a brain tumor and say, but it's this all, is for a larger yeah, it's purpose. it's going to work out in the end, right? No, but no, it didn't work out. No, They're absolutely. Dead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have and, lost. Yeah, and so that's that's not a loving response. That's a that's a response out of fear for trying to uh, make sure this narrative isn't threatened. But it's engaging with the mystery of suffering and the, this weird kind of experience that we all have to kind of go through. Um, if you're like yes, this is unthinkable, and yes, God is with you, and yes, he is suffering as well. And that, to me, is the point of the cross, is that here's this pinnacle of human suffering, and here's this pinnacle of openness and love and forgiveness and unimaginable pain and, you know, Jesus having to watch, uh, or Jesus' mother having to watch him, like, suffer in this way. You know, it's just, um, it's, deeply painful and deeply beautiful and it's expansive and abundant Hmm. to me. So that, that kind of recapitulation of that narrative of what the cross means was something I'm still kind of like working through and trying to think through. Yeah. Well, that's, but that's this, yeah, it's one of these eternal stories that is so powerful and, and grabs us. Um, and is when we, you know, it's almost like it's this expansive story that then the Puritans maybe narrowed. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't know if it was incredibly warped, but it was like, we're just going to narrow in on this one part of it. Um, and that helps us control it better. It helps us have more ability to, to know when we are acting within the story and not instead of this expansive story that says, I'm not in control of that. Um, and it's for me to, to, um, to surrender and live day by day. Yeah. So well, go, go you, well, you become so important. In in the in yeah, the other story, yeah, yeah. That's you so are true. you are the central character, and it's all up to you. And like the whole world starts to revolve around your own ego and your own experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's deeply humbling and and difficult, I think, to be like, I am one of many, 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 many people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's you know, <laughs> I think maybe a theme of the themes of this show has often been. Um, are this like put, maybe pushing back against a story that says uh, a, a like progressive story, a, a progressive version of history that says like we are we're evolving as a species or we're mm. getting better and better. Mm. But we look at what you just said about mm. you know inheriting this narrative as as kids that we are the center of the story sure. and need to have all this you know be the locus of control and that 
we know we have students we know and we were students here and we know that's how we came here and that's largely how we still left here oh yeah and that we didn't start maybe being able to undo some of that until you know 20s 30s 40s oh <laughs> and so I'm like, like i'm two percent into undoing that right, Scott. Right. yeah i'm very much yeah still the center of my own wor- world but i'm not proud of that you know i'm yeah. like i have a lot of unlearning to do in that respect and yeah. there's this is potentially like if you look at it in a, in a historical arc it's really probably regressive where we yeah. are having to spend half our lifetime now undoing this this um this poor story this yeah. is just you know this it's a version story it's a yeah it's it's a projection on the wall that doesn't you know and maybe what we maybe you know we, we move into isn't something that's ultimate truth like i think there's a sense of like well you emerge from plato's cave into like bright sunlight that just reveals everything and that's probably not true like probably you emerge from plato's cave into a larger cave where the forms are a little more distinct and you go through that journey throughout your life if you care to try to try to deal with things in in their most deep reality and again as christians um we we know that the most deep reality is that um jesus is king and is bringing a kingdom that is good and he's working with us uh, allowing us into that good work of spreading yeah. that good news of living that good news yeah to, i think uh, to bring a more loving world i think that's a really good addendum to that kind of plato metaphor of rather than turning around and exiting the cave you probably turn around and enter a cave that's still better and store yeah. still more expensive yeah. but you know it it's a gradual process and mm-hmm. i think that's i think that's the whole point of um aging is that you realize that change progress everything is incremental seemingly mm. uh, most things let's say um and so yeah it I has to be renewed huge. every generation um well i would love to go on and on on that uh but i really want to can we bring this to today a little bit i'm uh wondering where maybe you see right now today where is this narrative structure really deeply influencing us maybe in powerful ways that we aren't noticing yeah that's a great question scott i think um for me it's, I think what really draws me to Jesus is he constantly is trying to show people to think in a non-dual, non-binary way. So it's, I think someone, maybe Richard Rohr, someone else uh, calls it like third way thinking. Third way. Yeah. 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 And so it's, it's um, the idea of Pharisees trying to come to Jesus and pin him down exactly. And Jesus trying to you know, open there. So it's saying, um, just essentially, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar and, and Jesus responding, render to Caesar unto Caesar and to God's what is God's. So it's, and oftentimes he'll try to, he'll give a narrative rather than a direct response to a question to try to encourage people to, to think in this third way. Um, so, that is kind of a preface to answer your question. Uh, let's take this like dualistic binary way of thinking it's black lives matter versus the police and blue lives Perfect. matter. Perfect. Yep. yep. So, um, why are, why do we have to adopt one of 
those why do those narratives rather rather than having to adopt one of those why why is that the narrative and why are those the two sides of this binary like i watched this um interview with i believe he was the police chief of dallas who is a middle-aged black man who was talking about like look we ask cops to do too much like the job as it is today in 2020 is it's, it's like a part social services position it's part like a law enforcement position it's part like a paperwork kind of position like it's just too much for any person to do perfectly much less tens of thousands of people to do per- perfectly or even well or and even when the well, stakes are yeah. so high the difference between a, a fair a perfect job yeah a, a good job and just yeah. a fair job is yeah. a, there's a lot of lives at stake in between absolutely and so that's also not to say that there is there really does seem to be some problem with brutality towards a certain group of americans in this case like black americans yeah um that doesn't mean you have to be anti-cop to be pro lives pro black lives matter and so for me that's this kind of dualistic narrative that is frustrating to me because it lacks imagination like why can't there be a collaborative discussion about what should the job entail Mm -hmm. and how can we help like alleviate some of the stress and burden that Mm -hmm. our cops face on the streets and how can the black community speak into that experience of like this is real what we are feeling is real and how can that be a collaborative discussion like so for me it just so lacks imagination yeah and you're talking about something that's it's communal. It says that actually this problem, as with maybe all problems, it's actually always a, a communal problem. Like we have, we are all participating in a society that says we're just, our, our connection to criminal justice will be paying our taxes that will fund this person. It's so arm's length. And then it's their job again, because they are the locus of their own control. They are, they are in charge of their own story. It's that police officer's job to be great, be perfect, do it because we're paying him to do it. And that separation instead of, you know, the, the world that, that or the kingdom that Jesus might be wanting to bring that says we actually all participate. We all are a part. We all share in the injustice and maybe even a little bit in the project to bring the justice. Um, well, I'm curious, uh, just looking, t- taking this, looking to the future, what, is there anything you would leave our students with something to, to a way to maybe try on a new lens and, and think differently about the world in light of these narrative structures? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think just, um, whenever you think about an issue, even in your family, even in, um, I don't know, especially as you think about issues in this country, just take a beat like take a take a take an extra breath to make sure that is the thing that I think not just regurgitating a narrative I was kind of prepackaged to give by people that want me to think this way that serves like their purpose um or can I think about this a little bit more as groups of what George Saunders would call non-idealized individuals so like if you think about a migrant caravan there's 3,000 people who are striving to do good are broken there are three thousand people that are just like you like think about how complicated your life is you can't be summed up in one way and so i think that to try to 
um, maybe make some progress on some of these destructive narratives. Start to individualize people. Start to think about, start to like give them names, you know, start to um, treat them with dignity. Um, even people you don't like, even people who, isn't that the whole point of loving your enemies? So, right. Yeah. yeah, gosh, love your enemies. Um, thank you. Um, I, I wish we could talk on and on about this. I um, do want to ask you the rapid fire questions quickly. I I do want to note though right now to everyone listening, we're sitting here on November 4th in the morning and it is a, the day after election night. And if you are listening to this, that was maybe a, a little while ago for you, but if you can remember what the country and everyone was feeling, um, you know, in an un, unknown morning after a very charged election, that's, it's, it's uh, 9.40 a.m. on that morning and Matt, Matthew and I are sitting here and I bring that up to, to note that um, even though that's this overpowering story that's taking place, that, um, that we can sit here and know that there is, it doesn't, it, it is not the binary of this story is, you know, has to be the most important thing for you or you're not a good person that we can sit here and we've just talked for 45 minutes without ever mentioning that election or any of that. Um, and so maybe that's another piece people can take that like you don't have to choose to assign all of your value to the stories that people are, are um, putting in front of you. Absolutely. Um, okay, so rapid fire, what are you reading? Uh, I'm reading a book called Backpacking with the Saints by Bell and C. Lane, which I'd highly recommend. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, and also Silence by yeah, Shusaku Indu, uh, which was adapted into a Scorsese film. Um, reading that yes. with a, a book club, cool. Point Poet Society, shout out, um, which is cool. a new book club that uh, started at PLNU. So. Okay. What are you listening to right now? Um, there's a podcast by Richard Rohr called Another Name for Everything. Okay. And uh, yeah, it just challenged me to th think through a lot of these narratives that, that I had thought I'd had known or never thought about before. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's good. Is the other name for everything Christ? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. um, and then um, who's made an impact on you this week? Uh, so Dr. Michael McKinney uh, oh. teaches, yeah, yeah, he teaches uh, literature here at Point Loma. I got to um, get him in here. He's, that would be lovely. Uh, he's taught 50 years at this university. Um, How many? Huh? How many years? Five zero. Five zero. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a legend and he's... Um, so we talk weekly just because I'm helping him with um, his online classes, but I can't speak enough to how he modeled many of these things for me when I was his student. Um, just an abundance worldview, like a, a deeply loving, deeply abundant, deeply participatory in people's suffering. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for McKinney, like I had conversation with him really recently. He was like, you know, how, I was like, McKinney, how do you love people and he's like, I just suffer with them. I just suffer, mm. <laughs> you know? Mm. So that's yeah, beautiful. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for all the work you're doing here and for, um, yeah, all the ways that you, um, clearly live out and embody this, um, this, uh, uh, knowing that the world is just full of, um, wonderful and terrible and competing narratives and how you can how you can live well through it so yeah. really appreciate you thanks so much for having me on Scott sorry man you're like way late to class uh, no, 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 no.